Lord, it's true that you are worthy. And I pray now that as we continue to worship you, through the understanding of your word, that you will help us, Lord, to grasp the hope in Jesus, the hope in the resurrection, the hope that is intended for each of us. I pray this through the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. If you've paid attention at all to the news this week, then you couldn't miss that Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, France was burning. And it was decimated by that fire. And I find it interesting as I continue to read about it that over a billion dollars have been pledged to rebuild this 850-year-old church. And I think that is wonderful. But almost nothing has been said by those big givers about the religious heritage of the church. Rather, they speak of it as a national icon and symbol. I don't say this to be critical of them. I think God inspires generosity in all kinds of people. And He uses all kinds of people when we read the Scriptures. But I think the response says something about the importance of sacred spaces, even by those who don't fully understand their meaning and their purpose. Archaeologists tell us that sacred spaces have existed since the earliest settlements of humankind. We have put up altars and built temples. And we thought of these as places of contact with the deity that inhabits that space. And there are rituals of worship that all of these temples possess. And those rituals serve essentially two purposes. The first, to appease the anger of the deity. And the second, to coax the deity to act favorably toward them. I learned about sacred spaces as a kid early on. I learned, first of all, that you don't fidget in your seat. You don't move around, you don't hum, you pay attention. And if my ears kind of stick out away from my head, it's only because my dad would like to twist them while I was doing that. I learned you were quiet in church. You didn't talk in church unless you were invited to by the religious leaders of the church. So whenever you came into church, didn't matter whether a service was going or not, You whispered because it was respectful. Now, I'm an old guy. And back in the day, there was a lot of tension between Catholic churches and Protestant churches and a lot of things being said between both that today upset me. In fact, they upset me all the way back then. And I was told that the true church was the Catholic church. And it was a sacred place. And the others 
Well, they weren't. And I remember walking by this large Methodist church. And they had their doors open one, one day. It was hot. It was a big stone building. And there was a long, long walkway from about here to the back doors to get in. And, they, and it was raised up. And I wanted to see what was going on in there. But I was terrified. What if I did something bad as a result? I mean, I knew when I came into Catholic Church, I needed to take the holy water and cross myself. I knew when to genuflect and where to genuflect. I knew during the services when to beat my chest and say mea copa, even though I didn't know what it meant. I knew all the ritual. What I missed was the essence of God. But I felt like I was at least attempting to get closer to Him. That's what sacred spaces are like. Well, the temple in Jerusalem was no different than any other sacred space with regard to rituals, but it was different with regard to the deity who was being worshipped. Because the Creator of the ends of the earth, the Sovereign Lord over all things, He made Himself known to the Jewish people. He called them to be His children. And He promised that through them He would bless the entire earth. Through them would come a Messiah who would bring redemption. Not just for God's people, but for all people everywhere. The temple in Jerusalem was where they worshipped Yahweh. But it no longer exists today. The first temple was something that David thought of in his heart. He lived in a in a wonderful mansion as king, and he thought, God is in this tent of meeting, this tabernacle. God should be in a better home than I'm in. And he wanted God to, to be worshipped in Jerusalem, and he wanted a great, great temple to be built for God. And so God allowed it. But, God said that Solomon would build the temple, his son. So the first temple was built by Solomon. And it existed for 370 years until the Babylonians came and conquered Judah and destroyed Jerusalem and raised the temple. Seventy years later, when the first exiles returned, they rebuilt that temple and it lasted for another 330 years. And then Herod the Great, he took that temple down. He built up the Temple Mount, which is where it's located at. And he built a great temple, twice the size of Solomon's temple. It took him 70 years in all to build. He didn't build it. His sons had to finish it. 
But this is the temple that Jesus had entered. It was where he had talked to the elders when he was bar mitzvah. And it is where he would return to proclaim his ministry and mission. Interestingly enough, it was destroyed in 70 AD. The Jews had rebelled against Rome, and in retaliation, Rome destroyed their temple and exiled all the Jews from their nation. And they were spread out throughout the Roman Empire. just as Jesus had prophesied. And they would not return for another 1,900 years. Jewish eschatology says that when the Messianic age is to come, there will be a third temple. Interesting, huh? Well, our text today is from John chapter 2. And this is where the resurrection of Jesus and the temple intersect. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus came to Jerusalem three times during the three Passovers of his ministry. Each time Jesus conspicuously revealed himself to be the Messiah. No one there could doubt that claim that he was trying to make. Or doubt that he was trying to make that claim. Let me put it that way. So in John 2, the account reads that Jesus entered the sacred temple. This is his first time and first Passover. And he will draw attention to himself in the manner of a prophet. Let's read it together. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, for they do not make my father's house a house of trade. In the ancient world, religion was big business. It employed priests and servants and teachers. And it was supported by other industries associated with temple worship. People made regular pilgrimages to the temple. And in the Jewish faith, the highest of their holidays, the most important was Passover. And it had thousands of people coming to worship at the temple. Josephus, a Jewish historian, writes that a quarter of a million sheep were sacrificed in one Passover. Now, think about this. Many of those people did not come along. And this does not count. It's just sheep. It doesn't count oxen. 
Doesn't count goats, doesn't count doves, doesn't count pigeons, doesn't count grain offerings, doesn't count peace offerings. Thousands of people. It was a sea of humanity in Jerusalem. It was a perfect opportunity for Jesus to maximize his exposure. So that people would know about his ministry and his teaching and his mission. The money changers and the merchants that John writes about were a part of the businesses associated with the worship of Yahweh. Money changers were needed because the coins that were to be used at the temple could only be coins without images upon them. Coins with images were considered to be icons. So they traded for Tyrian money, which had nothing to do, no pictures of any faces or anyone on it. Merchants were needed because obviously pilgrims couldn't all bring their own sacrifices with them. Many made long journeys. So these were an important part of the sacred space of the temple in Jerusalem. When Jesus entered the outer gates of the temple, in the outer court of the temple, that's where he saw this marketplace. All these animals and merchants. All this buying and selling. And for his purposes of his own ministry, Jesus makes a prophetic type act He makes a whip and drives out the animals. He overturns the money changers' tables and he tells those who sold the birds to leave. Jesus, in essence, is saying this is sacred space. It is not intended to be a marketplace. The other Gospels say that Jesus called it a house of prayer. A house of prayer where we intimately connect with God. John says, Jesus said these words. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Scholars tell us that this is an allusion to a prophecy from Zechariah of the messianic kingdom to come. In the kingdom to come, the Messiah will make all things holy and there will be no need for sacrifices and no need for merchants. This is what Zechariah writes. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Unnecessary. God has made these things holy. They need not engage in these rituals because those who are in the Messianic kingdom with God, are already holy. God has made them so. When Jesus said this, he was essentially saying, I am the Messiah. Now the next thing we read is that Jesus' claim is challenged. John says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? acting in accordance with 
the law of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, they were to ask him for a sign so that they might know whether he is speaking for God or speaking for evil. And Jesus tells them this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus said, the proof and truth that you sing will be revealed when the temple is destroyed and raised up in three days. The challengers to Jesus thought he was out of his mind. They had already spent 46 years building out that temple, and it would be another 20 before it was completed. Raise it up in three days. Impossible. Little did they know they are right. But isn't that just like God to do the impossible? Matthew and Mark record in their Gospels that when Jesus came before the Sanhedrin in the trial, this account of what he said about destroying the temple and raising it up in three days was part of the testimony against Jesus. But the eyewitnesses couldn't agree on it. And they also said in their Gospels that when Jesus hung on the cross, the people taunted him, saying that he, he would destroy the temple and raise it up. He should take himself down from the cross. But of course, he wouldn't because he came for the cross. This is what they said. You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from that cross. Well, John ends this portion of this account by saying, Therefore, he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Here's what we know. The messianic claim of Jesus is true. All of the Gospels tell us that Jesus rose from the grave. They all agree. They tell us that Jesus died on Good Friday. And they rushed to get his body to the tomb before sundown. Because when the sun went down, it was the end of a day. And when, and, and when it was completely dark, the new day started. So on Good Friday, Jesus was in the tomb the first day. They rushed home as Saturday began, because it was both a Sabbath and the Passover. And they could do nothing on that day. That was the second day Jesus lay in the tomb. Then at sundown on Saturday, until sundown on Sunday, it was the third day that Jesus was in the tomb. On Sunday morning, the women arose early. They went out to the tomb. 
They wanted to prepare his body for the final rest. But when they got there, the tomb was empty. Mary Magdalene told the disciples, and John and Peter ran. John running ahead of them to look in the tomb and finding it empty. John, the writer of this gospel, an eyewitness to all of these events. They left, but Mary stayed. And Jesus revealed himself to Mary Magdalene and then later to the disciples. In fact, St. Paul tells us in his letter to 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 that Jesus revealed himself to more than 500 people between the time of his resurrection and the time of his ascension. Jesus fulfilled the sign that he had promised by rising on the third day. It was confirmed by many, including our eyewitness, John. The resurrection proves this about Jesus. It proves that he is the Messiah, the promised one of God. It proves that he had the authority to throw merchants and money changers out. It proves that he is ushering in the new messianic kingdom. And it proves that he is the new temple. It is he who has replaced the old temple. And that's the big idea today. The big idea today is this, that Jesus is the new temple. The new sacred means of connection with God. The resurrection of Jesus has ushered in the eschatological messianic kingdom, which is yet to be fulfilled. No longer do we come to God in a place, but we come to God in a person. This is precisely the exchange in John chapter 4 when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well and she begins to talk about what we believe and worship on this mountain and you believe and worship on that mountain and Jesus said, I tell you, God will be worshipped in spirit and truth. Not in places, but in His person. And there are no longer rituals to make us holy, to appease God's anger, or to coax His favor. But there is relationship. Relationship through Jesus. Jesus, Yeshua, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ, He is the third temple. Through Him, everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, have an intimate contact and connection with God. They may freely receive forgiveness and the blessings of God. And these come through Jesus. Here's a little side note for you. In Revelation, chapter 21, when the picture of the holy city 
in the Messianic kingdom is revealed. This is what it says. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Jesus is the new temple. He is the new sacred space. We don't come here today to church as a sacred space for rituals of forgiveness and blessing. The church is the people gathered together to worship and celebrate Jesus and what God has done through Him and to give glory to God who deserves it all. We come together to teach and instruct and admonish one another. We come together to minister to one another and we come together to be equipped to carry out the good news to all the world that God loves them. It is not the sacred spaces that they need to go to but a sacred person, the person of Jesus who loves them. It is not ritual that will assuage the anger of God against their sin, but Jesus who has already done that in His sacrifice upon the cross. And it is not ritual that will bring blessing into their life, but it is Jesus who will walk with them and never forsake them. And the church is born of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sends to fill us. God making His dwelling with us, within us. He empowers us. He leads and directs us. He causes us to live in community together as God intended. He leads us in mission to share the Gospel and the good news. And all is of God through the resurrected Jesus. Not a place and not ritual. Jesus replaced them. He is the expression of God's undying love for us. And by His blood, the Lord has laid aside His anger and wrath against the sins of those who trust Jesus, to forgive them. At the beginning of the service and the call to worship, Robert put up from Revelation 5 these words. I want you to look at them again. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. No longer is there a special place to go to connect to God. No longer is there ritual or good works to perform so that we may connect with God. God has ordained that faith in Jesus is enough. 
And faith is a choice. <clears throat> now I know for some, resurrection seems impossible. And in my study of it, quite frankly, it cannot be proved or disproved. But this much I can say, the weight of historical evidence absolutely suggests that it's true. Ultimately, each of you must choose for yourself whether you will believe or not. And yes, God has ordained that Jesus is the only way to God. Sounds a bit exclusive. But it's his bat and ball. He gets to set those rules. And it's not so much rules as it is an invitation to everyone to join him. Jesus is real. Jesus changes lives, even the unchangeable one who claim that they cannot, including some of you. As fantastic as it seems, I will say to you that it may be not the greatest miracle that God has performed. Perhaps a greater miracle than the resurrection is the miracle that God performs when he enters a human heart like mine or yours and transforms you. I have seen many people be transformed. I have seen people who did not believe they could be forgiven, forgiven. I have seen people who believed they had no value discover their value in God. I have seen lives turned upside down and inside out in a good and great way. I have seen lives miraculously changed time and time again. Not because of me, but just because of my proximity to what the Holy Spirit was doing in people's lives. I would encourage you, I encourage all of you, believe in Jesus. Jesus is a choice. Like every relationship you have in your life, it's a choice. Jesus is a choice. And that choice is to humble yourself and trust Him rather than yourself. That choice is to ask Him to forgive you. And that choice is to ask Him to help you to live your life. Loving God fully and loving others fully as God has always intended for us. And I promise if you make that choice, you will not be disappointed. Jesus is our living hope. To him be glory and honor and praise. And if you believe this this morning, then I ask you to join with me in a resounding amen together. Amen. Lord, we thank you.
for being the good and gracious God that we, you are, for loving us the way you do. We thank you for the privilege we have to know you and to be blessed by you. I pray that as we celebrate your resurrection, the proof that you are who you are and that all that you have said is true, that, Lord, it would be pleasing to you, our praise, and it will fill our hearts to overflowing. And I pray that it will grant us energy to share with others this good and great news that you are God, you have risen, risen indeed. In Jesus' name I pray this, amen.